Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national, and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan, and in this episode of the podcast, my guests and I will consider the findings of the report Dying in Poverty, recently published by the end-of-life charity Marie Curie. There's a link in our show notes to access the report and to find out more about the charity's work to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. Their podcast on the Marie Curie Couch is really worth a listen. I'd encourage you to check it out, of course, after listening to this episode of Let's Talk Social Work. With me to discuss the dying in poverty research are Jamie Robinson, Principal Social Worker at Marie Curie's Bradford Hospice, and Mark Jackson, the charity's Policy Manager for England. Jamie, Mark, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you doing? Jamie, how are you? Morning, Andy. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. You're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. And Mark, how are you doing? Yes, yeah, not bad. Thank you, Andy. Uh, thanks for having me on. Good man. Where are you, Mark? Uh, I'm uh, broadcasting from South London. Okay. And Jamie, where are you? Um, based in Bradford Hospice. Okay, wonderful. That's Yorkshire, isn't it? That right, yeah? It is, yeah. West Yorkshire. Okay, wonderful, West Yorkshire. Thanks. Now, Jamie, Mark, I want to talk about this research, Dying in Poverty. Um, and I, but before we get into the details, I want to discuss what prompted the research. Jamie, you work as a social work practitioner. Mark, you work in the policy team. Now, was this research, was it, a, was it an approach led by the policy team or was it driven by the experiences of practitioners, the, the issues that you and your colleagues are witnessing while supporting service users, Jamie? How did the research come about? Well, I think it's it's a bit of both. Uh, we've known for a long time that there is a financial cost to a diagnosis of, of terminal illness. And that's, that's some work we've done uh, in, in our policy and research team to look at, at, at establishing how much that cost is. And that's, you know, driven by uh, loss of income. It's driven by by the added costs that can be associated with a terminal illness. And I'm sure, sure Jamie can talk about uh, what some of those are in the context of, of patients uh, that, that she and her colleagues have seen. Um, but what we haven't known up until now is what the impact of those additional costs and what sort of knock-on effects of that uh, financial impact of terminal illness are in terms of actually driving people below the poverty line. And I think with the recent um, concerns over the rising cost of living, uh, it's something we really wanted to, to look at. And, and yeah, we, we partnered with researchers from Loughborough University uh, to, to look at essentially what is the, the impact of, of a terminal diagnosis on your likelihood of experiencing poverty at the end of life. And in terms of the headline findings, Mark, the report explains that more than 14 million people in the UK, that's 22% of the population, experience poverty each year, and that 90,000 people die in poverty in the UK each year. That's a really shocking finding. Were you surprised by the scale of the problem? It is really shocking. uh, And nobody should die in poverty. So we were we were extremely concerned by by the numbers there. I think what was particularly shocking to us uh, is that you know the risk of being in poverty at the end of life is not uniform across the population. So although, as you say, you've got that that headline figure, if you like, of of ninety thousand people dying in poverty, once when you dig into that and you look at 
who those people are and uh, which groups of the population are more at risk and of being affected. There are some really, really shocking findings in there. Uh, what was particularly surprising and, and disturbing to us was it's actually people of working age who are most likely uh, to die in poverty, you know, twice as likely uh, to die in poverty if you're of working age when you die compared to whether if it's compared to if you're a pensioner, uh, and that's actually one in four working age people in the UK who dies uh, while they're of working age is in poverty in the last year of their lives. And as I say, we found that very concerning and very disturbing. Mark, if we drill into that ninety thousand figure a little bit now, that's ninety thousand people die in poverty in the UK each year. Are all of those 90,000 people terminally ill or does that include people who have died of, for example, a heart attack or an accidental death? Yeah, it includes it includes all deaths in the UK where we're, you know, we, we expect that, that a, a great many of those people uh, will be terminally ill, especially when you're looking at the, the working age population. If you take out uh, you know, accident or, or, or sudden death, then, then you know, the vast majority certainly of people of, of working age who are dying going to be dying as a result of a, a of a terminal illness? Um, so yeah, it, it's a big concern for us as I say the, the scale to which a terminal diagnosis and, and living uh, approaching the end of life can uh, can can drive one into poverty. Thank you, Mark. And now, what proportion of the total number of people who die annually experience poverty in the final months? Uh, well, as I say, if, if you're of working age, it's around one in four uh, working age people who die uh, are in poverty in their last year of life. Uh, of the 90,000 uh, people who die in poverty every year, that's around 25,000 of the total. So I think it's uh, what you have to, to bear in mind is although the vast majority of deaths are among people who are already over pension age, as, as you would expect, the proportional risk of being below the poverty line uh, is is much higher if you're a person of of working age. So the the overall number is is smaller if you see what I mean. But the the risk to the individual is much higher if you're at working age when you die. Absolutely. And can we get a figure for the number of working age people who are dying in poverty? Uh, as I say, it's around twenty five thousand. Twenty five thousand. Thank you. Okay, Jamie, in your role, you support people as they come to the end of their lives. Now, the role of palliative care social work, that's one that many people may not be very aware of. I'll hold up my hands. It's not a role that I'm very aware of. Can you tell me a little bit about your work and what it involves? Yeah, so um, we aren't statutory based. Um, we are employed by the charity. Um, we can do everything that social workers do in the community. But I feel my role gives me time with patients um, that you wouldn't normally get in a statutory role. Our caseloads are a lot smaller and we can dedicate that additional time to spend with people. When they come to the hospice, they're really, really anxious. You know, a lot of people still have a conception that you come to the hospice to die. It's, it is where you come just for the end of your life. But actually, we do so much more around symptom management. So actually building up those important relationships is a massive part of my job. Um, and we get to know families really well because they may have a number of admissions. So the main focus is obviously more holistic and we focus greatly on spending time um, either with the patient or with them as a whole, with their family as well, just to establish that background information and where they need support, um, which varies quite greatly from when you've got the hustle and bustle and commitment of all your cases in the community. And are there statutory um, palliative care social workers or is it a role that's only really in, in the charity and voluntary sector? There, there are some in some of the local authorities. Um, I don't think they're in every council. 
Um, but obviously in in Bradford we have we have the hospice, so we we can meet more people. Um, not every area has a hospice, and sometimes there is travel involved. So Bradford's really lucky that we have this dedicated team uh, and specialist in the community, specialist nurses that can go out and see people at home as well. Have you always worked in palliative care? No, my background is um, childcare. So after leaving school, I, I did that for 12 years, um, had my own family and then went back to university to study again. So I've only been in this role for um, four years qualified uh, and did my final placement here and just never left. It's it's really my, my place that I wanted to be and I love coming to work. Great. And in terms of when you're when you're supporting um, terminally ill patients and their families, what is the what are the practical what's the practical help you're able to give at that stage of person's life? So when they come in, obviously the first things we want to do are to make them feel settled and comfortable. Like I say, a lot of people are so scared when they come in that they're not going to leave. Um, so it's about speaking to them, seeing what's important to them, and then we can build on that. So it may be that they do have financial concerns. Um, like Mark had said, you know, a lot of working people come in. So once they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, they can't work any longer. That has a massive impact on the family. The income's going to be reduced. So we can help with welfare checks and look at what benefits they are entitled to and try and make sure that we make those gaps as small as we can because we know the impact. Um, like I say, they, they may not be here to die. So when they get home, we need them to have the best quality that we can. So we would go through benefit checks. We'd look at if there is benefits in place, if they need to be increased. We'd look at if they've got advanced care planning in place and practical matters like wills or funeral planning as well. So we try and cover the whole board when they come through. Well, how does experiencing poverty at the end of life affect individuals, Jimmy? Um, and, and also, how does it affect their their families? Massively. Um, I can give you one example of a family that we recently visited. Um, we had a current um, short pause at Bradford and we did a lot more community work. So we actually went out and saw people in their homes. When you walk into a house and see people sat in their courts because they can't have the they can't afford the heating bill anymore. Um, it's quite a shock. As a, you know, I have a family, a partner, we have, you know, a substantial wage coming in, but you can see everything increasing weekly shopping bills and the actual reality of going in and seeing a person that is terminal got a terminal diagnosis sat in a court because they can't afford to have the heating on it's just heartbreaking um i mean it should be the last thing on someone's mind as they come to the end of their life um whether or not they can pay their bills definitely you know in terms of spending time quality time with family i suppose you know just enjoying that the, the time they have left together to think that somebody is unable to do that. I mean, because this is what I'm getting at in terms of also the mental health impacts and the emotional impacts um, that are associated with with poverty. You know, what are you seeing with the families you're supporting? They they can go from they've been so independent, they've had that job role, they've been out to work every day and they could have been in that position for maybe 20 years at the same job. They get this diagnosis with the pandemic, it may be a late diagnosis, so the condition could be more mm -hmm. progressed. Um, prognosis could be quite poor. And obviously they've got all that alongside not being able to work. And, um, you know, it's just devastating for them. The, the fact of that independence has been shredded already and pulled back. That then, then where do you go for the support? I know there's grants available. 
I tried to phone an energy company the other day on the behalf of a patient. Four hours I was on hold. Um, ended up emailing and it was five days before I got a response that was absolutely useless. So if you've actually got a terminal illness, you don't have the time or the energy to be sat trying to make those phone calls. And it's same with your family members if they're providing the care for you. They should be having quality, not having to go through the process of actual lengthy call wait times then you still don't get a resolve at the end so in one hand they said you yes we can do this you can apply for a grant but actually getting there is absolutely ridiculous and it time consuming when people have limited periods left and jamie you said you've been in your role for four years is that right yeah yeah How, have you seen the situation change over those four years have you noticed the difference in the severity of pressures that terminally ill people are facing Definitely over the pandemic, um, like we say, there's families that people were furloughed, people lost employment throughout the pandemic. So if you if you consider you've already lost your job and then you start with a terminal illness or you get your diagnosis, that's a massive impact of like a double whammy almost. You've you've you know lost your job from no fault of your own because companies have closed and people have been furloughed and. That's not something we've had control of. And you don't have the control of being diagnosed with a terminal illness either, but to have both of them together. So not only have your incomes dropped and you may be on benefits already, actually then you've got added pressures of weight loss, heating increases, um, you know, the children going to schools, clothing costs, everything just kind of snowballs. And you, I think they're kind of stuck in the middle and without the help of charities like Marie Curie where I work or other charities in the community where how do people know what they're entitled to I don't think there's enough information for people to go to to know where they can seek support um, and get further advice yeah I mean in terms of just a social security system in general it is a it's a maze and it's something that you know working with members of Boswell and as well just over the last couple of years trying to get social workers more up to speed in terms of understanding of, of how the whole social security system works because it is it is it's complex and it's not something which is easily understood and yeah if you're facing the distress of a terminal diagnosis then trying to navigate that system will be doubly hard um, Mark I just want to come back to talk about the research again now there are various definitions of poverty that we hear discussed when uh, research reports like this are produced you know relative poverty absolute poverty What's the metric that was used in the Marie Curie report for measuring and defining poverty? Yeah, uh, our research uses a definition of poverty that's been developed by the Social Metrics Commission, which is an independent commission who have a measure of poverty, uh, poverty based on household income and costs. But what, what we were really drawn to in terms of, of the way that the Social Metrics Commission approached poverty is it much better captures costs that are inescapable, like housing, childcare and the cost of disability than, than older uh, definitions of poverty. So we think it's a much more rounded and, and rich uh, metric than simply saying, for example, whether or not someone is on a, on a percentage of, of median income uh, before or after their housing costs. It much better captures those, those things which make life cost a little more, such as childcare or disability, and, and from which uh, you know, there is no escaping uh, the cost. That's, that's a definition which has been endorsed by, by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation uh, and the DWP. So it's, it, for us, it's really the gold standard. Oh, good. So it's actually, it's a standard which is recognised by government. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, the, the GDP okay. has, uh, has, has uh, endorsed that in, in, in the past. 
Okay, but they still tend to, DWP still tends to use the relative and absolute measures, don't they? They do, yes. And, ours, and, and, and I should say the, the, the Social Metrics uh, Commission's definition of poverty is relative uh, poverty measure. But as I say, what it, what it really tries to, to, to do is essentially capture the, the extent to which a person's income meets their outgoings and you know that that's really important for us when we're talking about terminal uh, about terminal illness as, as Jamie was saying you know we've we've worked with and we've spoken to people who can't afford to heat their homes which makes their illness and their pain worse people who are struggling to be able to afford to travel to hospital for essential appointments people are struggling to put food on the table while living with terminal illness and nobody should be have uh, having to deal with that uh, and and I say the definition that we've used in this research much better captures those kinds of costs than some of the the, the older definitions of poverty. And that's, I'm just really pleased that when you mentioned DWP, you recognise it, because that was my concern that if you're using a metric which is not necessarily recognised by government, does, does that make your campaign harder to land any sort of uh, um, win on? If, if, you know, if government would say, we don't recognise your measure, that would make it more difficult. So that's that's helpful that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, now, coming back to the report, it highlights, and we, we talked about this already, young parents are at the highest risk of dying in poverty. The report notes that two out of three parents with dependent children face poverty towards the end of their lives if they die before retirement age. Now, why is that? What are the factors at play? Well, I mean, it comes down to to costs as much as anything. Uh, you know, parents have to have to find a way to, to to look after their children and meet the costs of that, whatever their their circumstances. And as if you're living with a with a terminal illness and the, the kind of additional costs and income pressures uh, that we've we've talked about uh, already, you know. Uh, having to to find the cost of of childcare on top of that is 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 another uh, another additional cost. There are also uh, a few other factors uh, at play uh, there in terms of, of uh, you know making people with dependent children more likely uh, to fall into poverty uh, at the end of life. So um, you know what what we're talking about there is is you know compared to working age couples without children. Um, Two-parent households are more likely to be single-earner households, so with only one adult working. And if if that person has to leave the labour market, I, either because uh, they're diagnosed with a terminal illness themselves, or they have to reduce their hours to to care for uh, for their their partner, that's going to have a big impact. Uh, and of course, what you've also got is is uh, you know three million lone parent families in the UK as well. And if that that parent is diagnosed with a with a terminal condition, that's that's the whole household's uh, income affected. And I think what's again what's particularly disturbing for us in in those situations is you're not just talking about a terminally ill person whose parent experiencing poverty at the end of their lives. You're also talking there about a child or children who are experiencing poverty at the beginning of their lives. So it's a, it's, it's a particular concern. Yeah, there's a terrible cyclical nature to the impact of a slide into poverty on families. You know, so the, the report it notes that not only will it affect the person at the end of their life, but it leaves their children experiencing poverty at the beginning of theirs. Now, social workers know all too well the impacts associated with children going up in poverty. And on this point, Jamie, you know, we have discussed a little bit about the stresses facing terminally ill parents with young children. Um, those are particularly severe, and it's often easy. It's often easy for me when I'm uh, making this type of episode to focus on the top level figures, but we focus in to look at what the situation is like for the family with young children, where a parent is terminally ill, or worse, a situation where the sole parent in a single parent family is terminally ill, as Mark mentioned. You know, 
coming back to the practical support that that family is in need of and what you can provide in your role as social worker, um, when there are young children involved, what particular issues are you considering? Um, especially around lone parents. Um, obviously, we need to be looking that they don't go into crisis. So we need to be supporting them to look at advanced care planning and what actually is that going to look like moving forward for them if they do have an admission to hospital or the hospice. Um, they don't always have additional family support. So we do work quite closely with local authority children's services to try and make sure they've got um, a social worker involved so they can build plans for the future. We also look at um, things like making memories, what things can make it easier. So we'd help the parents or lone parent discuss what their illness is, what it kind of looks like, why the equipment's there. We'd have those difficult conversations and try and make it a bit easier for them try and avoid crisis because obviously the families are under so much stress already we try and work with schools and link in to offer support and activities that they can do with the children just to try and ensure that there's a, a whole support network around them so we wouldn't necessarily being in an adult service we wouldn't necessarily be hands-on working with the children but the advice and support that we can give to the parent to actually build those special moments with the children and then the local authority children's services do more, more of the support within the community about making sure the advanced care's in place. So whether that is with um, the wider family members, so maybe grandparents or maternal parents if they've had a split, um, or whether they need to be looking at a plan in foster care for the children so they have that stability and a, an easier transition after the parent dies. So although we are an adult service, we do have a lot of involvement around children's services. It's just, it's heartbreaking to think of that situation where a single parent, for example, having to plan, yeah, foster care arrangements for their child in in the in anticipation of their death. Uh, what about bereavement support for uh, kids? Um, is that a role that you provide in your role as a social worker at Marie Curie? We do. At the hospice, we have um, a children and young persons coordinator who's a qualified counsellor and therapeutic um counsellor as well so we have a dedicated bereavement suite at the hospice um, which we've got a family room so we can do family assessments we can try and work with them more pre-bereavement but actually we've found the more work we can do pre-bereavement eases the loss a little more um, and we don't tend to see as many children that are bereaved because we've done so much work pre-bereavement with them to try and get plans in place and we feel that the more the children know and if you're explaining and being honest with them, they don't need to know everything. But if they're asking questions and you're responding with the answers, they, they um, cope a lot better with having an understanding of what's actually happening and being part of that instead of making two and two make five and their own stories. If you're giving them an honest answer, we find that they cope much better moving forward. Mm -hmm. I wasn't planning on sharing this. My dad died when I was 14 and... Um, yeah, it, it, in terms of processing that at the time, I don't think I did. You know, it's it's almost like that came, you know, fifteen years later, uh, and and it's yeah, it's the it's the most strange thing to go through as a child to lose a parent. You know, and I wasn't even that young. You know, I can't imagine what it's like for a four year old, for a five year old. Um, yeah, thanks. That's just tremendous work. Um, so I'm getting a bit emotional. Uh, it is. It's um, yeah, sorry. It's definitely a privilege 
to be on that journey with families. It definitely is. And like you say, it's not something that you can process straight away, but if you've had honest answers early on, there's not as many questions later on. As we know, once a parent dies, you, you would never be able to obtain that information back from them. Oh, yeah. I can, yeah, just that sort of stuff. That sort of stuff growing up that you want to go back, all the questions you want to ask. As, a, as an adult and stuff, you know, it's weird because I have this sense of like kind of, you know, learning about my dad through all the stuff I know he loved, you know, doing that now as a dad. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Like I said, I wasn't meaning to share this. It wasn't the best idea, but thank you, Jamie. We'll move on. Um, now, one of the things that jumped out uh, time and time again when I read the case studies in the report was the importance, the importance of maintaining warm homes when people are ill. You know, we've talked about the cost of living crisis, the cost of gas and that and electricity is spiraling, you know, the impacts that that's having on people's lives are going to be massive. You know, what is that impact? Something simple like keeping a warm home uh, and or maybe being unable to keep a warm home. What's that going to mean for the people you're supporting, Jimmy? Um, because we support so many people with different terminal illnesses. Um, it's not necessarily cancer related. So it could be breathing problems that they have. So especially people that have um, COPD or lung conditions, sometimes obviously are less mobile so they're they're sat for longer periods but they may we find that if they have a flow of fresh air it eases their breathing so a lot of our patients that have um, breathing problems like to have the heating on but then they would sit by a window so they may have spent all morning warm in the home but then they feel that they need the urge of a, a fresh breeze from the window and automatically as soon as you're doing that you're releasing all the heat that you've spent building up all morning um, so again like I said when we're trying to get through to energy providers that that's a massive impact because then as soon as they move from the window close the door then you can feel that the coat's going to go back on and they're going to be sat there then probably until they need to move for personal cares or just comfort you know to protect their skin integrity and things in terms of pain management though as well is that it's a significant factor having haven't been in a warm environment for certain uh, types of conditions yeah definitely so it could be um you know if they've got cancer in their bones or even arthritis there's, there's lots of other things that come with terminal illness isn't they um, not just pain from the condition but additional problems uh, again from sitting and being less mobile it's <laughs> It's just really sad that you, the, the thought that people are, are sat at home um, needing warmth and that th they can't have it. So the cold could, make, you know, make their joints ache more, could, they could seize up more. They could lead to be spending more time in bed because it's a warmer place where they can have the quilt on. And then obviously that leads then to skin problems, um, to less mobility because they rely on the bed. Maybe it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard issue to address. But I mean, when you think about the the cost of hospital care for somebody who is terminally ill compared to the cost of heating a home, you know, it's drastically out of proportion. But you know, you don't get prescribed money to to put into your electricity and your gas meter. Um, and yeah, that's a that's a that's a big challenge. And when you're you're you've talked about the difficulties working with energy suppliers. When you are phoning up as a social worker, phoning up an energy supplier, are they you know is your role in the process recognised, or is it you know is the person taking the call kind of confused as to as why you're ringing in the first place? No, the the more the answer most of the time is that we need to be with the person. Yeah. Um, so get the family to ring because you need to be with yeah. them. 
even if we're just asking advice, you know, it, it could be a general query. So then we can use that when we're working with families to say, yes, if you can get in touch with your energy provider, you could have as much energy as you need for a set price. But the fact that they won't even share that with us and it, they just bounce it back, it just shows, you know, yes, we can sit at our desk and we can continue to work while we're on hold, but a family member might not be able to do that if they're on a pay-as-you-go contract, not a contract phone, so pay-as-you-go. Do they have enough money on the card to sit for four hours until they can speak to somebody? You know, will they have the understanding? Will the patient be willing to talk? Will they have gone to sleep by that point? There's all sorts yes. of things that contribute. Yes. yes. Um, if someone's on, if someone's on um, medication as well, you know, that might impair their ability yeah. to, to have those conversations. Um, Mark, if we talk about the benefits that people of working age are entitled to if they're terminally ill, can you paint that picture for us? What's the situation at the moment? Yeah, I, I mean, it will it will depend on an individual's circumstances, but they may be entitled uh, to claim universal credit if they've had to to, to leave work in terms of uh, uh, you know sort of supporting their their living costs. That may may have a housing element. It may have an additional element if they have if they have children. Uh, depending on the severity of their condition, uh, they may also be able to claim personal independence payment to help with the the extra living co- uh, costs of their of their disability. But I think what uh, it come, that comes back to uh, what we were talking about before about if you like the inescapable costs of living with disability and, and terminal illness. I think the although there are there are benefits available for people who are living with those uh, w- with those extra challenges, they're not always in in fact in many cases they're simply not uh, sufficient to meet those extra costs. I believe Scope uh, did some research uh, a few years ago now which suggested that even after all disability benefits are paid, people living with a disability uh, often require, I think, you know, upwards of £500 extra a month in order to achieve the same standard of living as a person who's living without a disability. And if you're reliant on on benefits as your main or your only source of income, which which two-thirds of terminally ill people are, uh, you, that that's simply nowhere near the money that you have coming in. So it's a system which is failing people. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very clear from, from this research that for terminally ill people of, of, of working age who are, who are approaching the end of their lives, the working age benefit system simply isn't sufficient as a safeguard against poverty. And there are a number of, of reasons for that. Um, you know, uh, the social security system over, for working age people over the last decade has become less generous uh, for working people relative to, to wages uh, and indeed uh, to the value of, of the social security system for pensioners. So, you know, if you're leaving work and having to, to rely on, on benefits, you're not only worse off relative to how uh, well off you would have been when you were working and you had a wage coming in, you're also worse off relative to the position you would have been in 12 years ago, uh, because as I say, the, the relative value of, of the working age benefit system has uh, has been reduced over the course of the last decade due to things like the benefits cap and other freezes. And Mark, in terms of employers, so if somebody is in work when they receive a terminal diagnosis, what are employers legally required to offer their employees who are terminally ill? Yeah, I mean, Although many people with a terminal illness may not think of themselves this way, uh, they're likely to be considered, uh, as I say, living with it with a disability, which means they they, they should be protected against discrimination uh, by by law. 
generally speaking, the employer should explore and consider reasonable adjustments to accommodate their needs at work. Uh, if they wish to continue uh, working, that could, for example, be around flexible working or, or, or letting them work from a, from, a, from home or another location, changing their duties, etc. The employer shouldn't be able to uh, make a person redundant or, or sack them based on their illness, but that doesn't mean that they can't. Uh, you can't be made redundant or dismissed for another reason. So, for example, one of the one of the case studies uh, we talked to in this report, a guy called Victor, is living with with terminal cancer, but his 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 role was made redundant during during COVID due to the business. Uh, he was working for making making sort of economies and savings because of the pandemic. So, although he wasn't, you know, moved out of his job because of his illness, it did that that doesn't stop him from being moved out of his role for another reason. If you see what I mean, absolutely. And did you um, come across any examples where employers were, you know, maybe being underhand in terms of their practices, where they were finding another reason to make someone um, unemployed who had a terminal illness? I think it's it's a concern we have so often. What will happen? Um, is as I meant, as I say, the employer will go through a formal process of establishing whether you're still able to do your job and any reasonable adjustments that that you need to stay in the role. What that often does is it sets a bar, which then makes it easier for that person to be dismissed if they fall below that bar as their condition subsequently deteriorates. And um, what the concern we have there in, in this context is that if a terminally ill employee is, is, is dismissed in this way, they not only lose their immediate income, but they would also lose the rights to, for example, any death in service benefits that the employer may offer. And that's uh, that's something which could obviously have a big uh, financial benefit to their, to their family and their loved ones in terms of, of, of helping them after the, after the terminally ill person has, has, has died. That would have a huge impact. Mm. Um, now, when we look at the, the picture across the UK, you know, are there areas where terminally ill people are more likely to die in poverty or is it a sort of uniform picture? There are definitely some regional factors. Uh, there are parts of the UK where you are much more likely uh, to be uh, in poverty at the end of life, whether you're of working age or, or, or past uh, pension age. So there are particularly high rates of, of end of life poverty, for example, in London, Birmingham, uh, Manchester, uh, Wales, for example, where, where and, and that's, that tracks with the experience of poverty throughout life, but again, the the experience of of being uh, at the end of life uh, increases those risks. Okay, so in terms of factors at play there, it's it's is it is it is it an oversimplification to say that those are areas where there is a higher rate of poverty at all stages, and that's simply why you're more likely to be in poverty at the end of life in those areas. I don't think that's an oversimplification now. I mean, if you look at if you look at the local authority areas uh, where the number and proportion of of working age and pensioners uh, dying in poverty in the UK, it, it is areas where there are overall higher levels of deprivation. So, you know, as I say, urban areas, London, uh, Birmingham, Manchester, and, and, and other large urban centres, and there are a number of, of, of factors uh, that will. Uh, drive that so you know maybe the population is is younger overall and therefore um you know more more people who are dying are, are going to be potentially of, of working age and we know that's that's a higher a higher risk people maybe maybe more likely to be living on lower incomes and thus closer to the poverty line already uh, and it may simply be uh, as well especially in london uh, that people are more likely to be renting either privately or socially and we know from from the research that that housing tenure is a strong predictor of whether or not you're going to be in poverty at the end of life there's also a disproportionate impact on people from ethnic minority groups. Can you tell mm -hmm. me anything about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, it's 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 pretty shocking. I think if you're if you're from a minority ethnic group and you're it's around two in five, uh, so about forty percent of uh, working age people certainly uh, from from those from those groups uh, are likely to be in poverty at the end of their lives. What was quite clear to us from the research is that terminal illness or, or reaching the end of life are not the cause of those disparities in terms of people are more likely to experience poverty throughout their lives, but the additional burdens brought on at the end of life throw those lifelong inequalities into even sharper relief and essentially lock in the inequalities that people face throughout their lives. And I think we're really clear that, that a lot more needs to be done to reduce inequalities that, that people from minority ethnic communities face before they reach the end of their lives, because it's often too late at that point to address them. And that's not simply economic inequalities, that'll be health inequalities as well. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, Mark, I'm aware that really big projects like this, there are months in the planning and months in the in the execution as well. Was the research conducted prior to the cost of living crisis? You know, that's really begun to bite in the last six months or so. When did the research start? Has it taken into consideration? Essentially, that's the question. Um, the cost of living yeah, crisis. So- yeah, absolutely. So it, it was research that we, we commissioned before uh, the recent sort of price rises began to kick in, but we, we were concerned about uh, about poverty at the end of life in the context of, of the COVID pandemic. So it's really been a kind of uh, a one-two punch for a lot of people, you know, COVID and then uh, the cost of living crisis. I think we're, we're greatly concerned that due to the price rises over the last few months, due to the the cost of living crisis. If anything, the numbers that we're talking about here are likely to be an underestimate of the problem currently due to due to to, to those impacts. It's, it, there's work we're doing to try and update uh, the numbers we have, but but I think you know it's very clear that with you know the the, the energy price cap is due to go up again in the autumn. You know we're seeing inflation hit its its highest level for for forty years. This is this is an issue which is is going to only grow exponentially unless action is taken. A ten percent rate of inflation isn't that what they're predicting by the end of the year? I believe so. Yeah. Yes. Now, Jimmy, earlier on you talked about the the changes you'd seen since the pandemic in terms of the the, the worsening situation for people's lives. If we come up right up to date, you know, so if we look back over the last six months, that's when the cost of living crisis has really begun to take effect. Have you noticed uh, any significant difference uh, in terms of the pressures that terminally ill people are facing in the very, very short term? I think um, a lot more are relying on food banks um, due to just not being able to put food on the tables. Um, They have, obviously, if you've got a terminal illness, especially around cancer and things, your appetite declines but families are not eating so their children can eat. It, it's just really dire, I think. Like we say, um, people haven't been seen medically over the pandemic, so we're seeing a lot more that have got poor prognosis because they're not able to have treatment. And I think that has a massive impact mentally on them as well and how you deal with that as a family unit. So not only, like Mark said, you, you've had... The, the fact that you may have been made redundant, then actually everything has gone through the roof as well. So families are just faced with where do, where do they turn? Um, lack of social care, lack of other services in the community. Uh, it must be it's just really difficult for families to know where to go to get that support. Jamie, thank you so much. You you paint such a vivid picture of the 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 challenges that people are facing, and I think I I don't I think it's from the forward of the the report. Your chief exec talks about this as a national scandal. It's nothing short of a national scandal. 
Mark, if we come back to you, um, what's Marie Curie calling for in terms of change to address the issues that terminally ill people are facing? Well, we think nobody should die in poverty, but as we've been talking about, that's the sad reality for, for 90,000 people in the UK every year. And as we've also discussed, it's it's a particular concern we have that, that this is more likely to happen to you if you're of working age. And, and as we've talked about, it's very clear to us that the working age benefit system uh, is simply uh, is simply not providing a safeguard for for people at the end of life from falling uh, into poverty in their last months and, and years. What we're calling for with our Dying in Poverty campaign is essentially for people of working age who are living with terminal illness to be given the same support from the social security system that pensioners receive. That means early access to their state pension and it means more help with the cost of energy and fuel through things like the winter fuel payment and the warm home discount. We don't believe that it's right that people who have paid into that system all of their working lives and have expected rightly that that system would be there for them at the end of their lives are denied that support simply because their lives have been cut short. We think that's wrong and we think there is a, a, a moral obligation essentially on, on government to make that uh, support available to terminally ill people of working age. And how much is the state pension, Mark? The new state pension is £185 a week, uh, which means that over the course of, of a month compared to for uh, an income-based benefit like universal credit, for example, you, you'd, you'd be getting around double the support that you would receive if you were on universal credit. Okay, so um, I'm aware that Marie Curie has recently welcomed steps from the government to allow people with a terminal mm -hmm. diagnosis of 12 months or less to get expedited access to benefits. Mm -hmm. um, you've warned that these changes need to be implemented quickly. Now, what I'm not sure about is um, how does the call for the state pension sit alongside um, the, the changes to get expedited access to benefits? Would the two double up? Would um, people be receiving universal credit and their state pension? Is that is that what the ask is? Yeah. So as 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 you say, we're we're very we're very welcoming of the fact that that the government has taken steps to essentially make it easier for terminally ill people to access uh, benefits. Uh, at the end of their lives. I think what's clear from, from the research is that aside from the question of access, there's a question of adequacy, if you like, of, of those of those benefits. And certainly if you're of working age, that it's clear that, that those benefits are not adequate to prevent people from falling below the poverty line. What we're calling for, as I say, is for terminal people to be able to access their state pension. That would, as we see it, replace income related benefits like universal credit and as i say you'd get you'd get um you know you, you'd, you'd be likely to be getting a lot more support through the state pension than universal credit but if, if you're also living with a with a disability and, and entitled to claim pip that would be something that can go on top if you if you're retired now you can claim pip in addition to your state pension and we don't see why that would, would change for a terminally ill person either and do you know in terms of what the the, the, the amount that the pension pays would that cover would that lift people out of poverty who are currently falling in below poverty line because of, for example, childcare costs? Because it's not an awful lot of money, even then. It's certainly a lot more than than people are claiming now. I think one of the other things we're calling for is for more support to be made available to uh, young parents with uh, with the cost of childcare. So there there is obviously childcare support and childcare cost support available to. Uh, to parents, but very often that is only available if both parents are working. Uh, and, and of course, in, in normal circumstances, that would that would make a lot of sense. If one parent's not working, they're able to uh, to to be able to to be looking after their their children. But if 
the parent isn't working because they're living with a terminal illness, uh, you know that 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 doesn't really apply. They they may still need some support with their childcare. So what what again? What we're asking for is for the government to make support with the cost of childcare available to terminally ill parents, even if they're not uh, in work. Thank you, Mark and Jamie. Now access to the state pension improve support in terms of childcare costs and improve support in terms of heating and fuel costs. For a family where there is a parent um, who is terminally ill, um, a family with young children, for example, what difference would that make to the quality of the, their life for their last, last months? Like Mark said, if that would potentially double what they're getting currently. Um, I think it still would be a struggle, but it would be more than, than what they are currently receiving. Um, it's just interesting. So they, they are expedited to get access to the benefits, but there's still a delay in those coming through as well. Um, I know it's not potentially 13 plus weeks anymore, and I think they're trying to get that pushed through quicker. So I think they're potentially looking at maybe six weeks, four to six weeks. But it's still that delay that people may not have access to any funds. Um, it would make, definitely make a difference. I still don't think it's it's enough. Um, to stop poverty. Mark, Jamie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to discuss this issue. It's so important. I wish you all the well for the campaign. And Mark, can you keep us posted as progress is made? It's something we'd, we'd want to keep listeners informed about. Absolutely. More than more than happy to keep you up to date. And, and I would say to listeners, if you if you agree with us at Marie Curie that, that nobody should die in poverty, uh, head to the website, uh, mariecurie.org.uk forward slash poverty, sign the petition, share the petition and help us uh, help us spread the word that, as I say, nobody should die in poverty. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you. Thanks, Andy.